Okay, thanks folks. So we've already done the um, opening uh, land acknowledgement and Rosemary shared some thoughts about, um, you know, some of the things that she was reading in the justice already and asking questions about NWAC. So um, I'm just gonna go again down our um, participants list and Carol would be up next uh, if you'd like to speak about the uh, what you read. So Michelle, thank you. Um, my pronouns are she, her, and L, and I am on uh, Treaty 7. The stolen Treaty 7 lands is where I reside. So when I read through this, Michelle, there was not one thing that I didn't think was unreasonable. And I thought to myself, what will the what will the politic what will take us to this? Like what political will is necessary and like so much in it there's so much that like I, I think what really st stuck out in my mind is the reforms that need to occur with the police the critical police failures and their paternalistic and prejudiced attitude toward indigenous women and how that actually caused harm and they have to be implemented and I, I I read it and I thought this all seems reasonable. Why isn't it happening? And like, what do I want to bring up two points of what you've just said already? Sure. Well, you talked about nothing in here is unreasonable, but political will. And right. I had just shared earlier today on my social media an article from one of Danielle Smith's lobby, a lobby groups who called um, Undrip. Marxist propaganda or something to that effect, right? Like uh, something that was said a while ago, maybe in December or something, but you know, so so you, like we have, especially in Alberta. So like when I was at, at National at Ottawa, you know, I said to like, you have to understand that I'm from Calgary. I'm from where, you know, the conferences to deny Indian residential schools are happening, right? And, and we have this um, conservative think tank trying to deny UNDRIP which we all know here is a foundation to uh, both the TRC as well as the MMIW report, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, so like just start there. And then secondly, you were talking about police um, accountability. You know, one of the reasons why I get so offended, frankly, by all of the um, defund movements, not because they're wrong, of course they're right, but just like uh, you see in the trans community not acknowledge these 231 calls to justice, you don't see the defund the police movement acknowledging, again, these 231 calls to justice. So if these non-Indigenous groups would quit with their anti-Indigenous bias, we could help solve not just the gendered violence issue that obviously the trans community is going through right now, but also accountability on the defund and so much more. But people's anti-Indigenous bias, those you know stupid fucking Indians can't possibly figure out nothing, right? They're in their head, that's what they think. Now I know um, my, uh, my community has given solutions over decades, over multiple reports. And because of the, when you say lack of willpower, I actually just call it racism. It is that anti-Indigenous bias that just stops non-Indigenous from being able to do the work and implement these 231 calls to justice ultimately. So that, you know, and those are just the two points you kind of brought up. 
it's like this is the foundation the racism that we're experiencing today is causing us to not even have the proper solutions implemented well it's to me all of this occurred because they the particularly the vancouver police department thought indigenous women were disposable and it's it that the the key phrase is right at the beginning it's about it's human rights we're human beings and i mean how can you make someone realize you're a human being? That is a question I've never had to answer about myself. Yeah. So, I mean, there's tons of this. There's, ton there's tons of stuff that, you know, I took notes. So, I mean, there's a lot in it. And I didn't, as I said before, I don't think there's anything unreasonable. And it. it's just that it's going to take a lot. And in Alberta, it is painful. These days are painful, painful. And I cannot bear the thought of waking up the day after the election and seeing Danielle Smith's name there. I cannot bear it. Yeah. It will be the first, oh, it will be, yeah, I can't even it. And it will be indigenous people who take her in hand. I am convinced of that. It will not be my cohort. It will not be. Yeah. Anyway, Michelle, it was a pretty big eye opener, and I thanks for that. Oh, I appreciate that, Carol. Thanks for for all that feedback. And and Kat, you're next up if you if you feel up for it. Yeah, I feel up for it. Sorry, um, my internet is a little unstable, so hopefully I can make it through. Um, I was so grateful to um, have been able to read the whole report first before the calls mm -hmm. for justice. I think that was a really important um, ground laying for all these calls. And as the previous two have mentioned, everything here is pretty reasonable. Everything here needs to be done. Everything here is a dream of mine <laughs> for this to happen. If all of this happened, it would. Canada would just be a much better place, much better. Um, I, I really appreciated um, the distinctive distinctions based approaches mm -hmm. too um, for Inui and Metis. Mm -hmm. And I loved the um, 2SLGBTQQIA section as well, um, which if all of these things were done, it would just benefit everybody. Mm -hmm. That's what people can't say, can't see <laughs> that even if these were all, you know, it's talking about basic income, it's talking about um, sustainable practices, it's talking about affordable housing, everybody would benefit if all of these things happened. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So we non-Indigenous have to make sure that they do happen, we have to make sure our candidates are talking about them. Mm -hmm. And I agree with Carol, I better not wake up day after election and see that woman's name. <laughs> well, I, I, I just encourage all Albertans to go and you, you can vote now you, because the offices will allow you to vote now and just do it. Just go get it done so that you can let the um, NDP know you voted, it's done, and they can take you off the list. So for folks who don't know, if you're not a part of uh campaigning basically they are going to harass you until they know you voted 
So the sooner you can tell them you voted, the sooner you're off the list and they can put their efforts and resources towards other possible NDPers. And, you know, of course, if you want to volunteer, if you have the will. Um, I wanted to ask any of you if you had seen the suggested resources for allyship, um, if they were useful to you at all. Uh, but also, I have a physical like copy here. And so I don't know if you necessarily have that. And if not, there's at least four links here. I can send them to you if you haven't got them. Just let me know, I suppose. Can. Yeah, okay, good. Um, so Marla, I, I invite you to unmute yourself and uh, chat with us about what you would like to talk about from reading these 231 calls to justice. Um, yeah, I have pages. <laughs> so I will clearly not delve into all of those. Um, some of it That's has okay. been touched on already. <laughs> Well, certainly about the justice and the policing, but I think um, Rosemary's earlier comment about the underfunding, um, I wish like that general um, knowledge of the constant underfunding of everything to do with Indigenous people since the beginning of the treaties was understood by people because that um, whole concept of you know, get over it. And why are we paying so much money now? And get a job, and, and you get free education. All that, you know, all the erroneous lies. things that are said. <laughs> yes, the propaganda. <laughs> uh, you know, if you really understood, like every single aspect of a person's life is underfunded. Um, I just, you just couldn't. You just couldn't stand there and justify those comments anymore, right? No. Um, so, yeah, that came out loud and clear through this. Um, I think a couple of other things stood out too. So, so one about the ombudsman, but the ombudsman, if I'm remembering correctly, wasn't that, or it's been appointed or going to be appointed by the government? It's not someone at arm's length, uh, and not you know, approved of by Indigenous peoples, but if I have that right, um, I might be thinking of, of, of some other role, but, um, and then also what else happened in Alberta recently? There was a 10.1 in here about cultural competency training for the legal system. And we know what happened recently with, you know, having to take some basic training around competency and the fear that that raised I mean uh you go to law school for how many years and you can't possibly you know take a I don't know two or three hour course I'm sure it's quite minimal that the whole um commitment required it would just be the the the, the small granule of snow on the tip of the iceberg uh so, and, and um, you know, regarding Daniel Smith, I have a great fear about that as well. However, I was saying to Mike on the weekend, uh, does it mean Rachel Notley is going to be any better? Because neither of them are talking about Indigenous issues. So I did or not get, I didn't get this done today, but I'm committing to all of you that, because I told Mike this too, so I can't get out of it now. I'm, I'm writing a letter to both of them and saying, what, 
like, what are you going to do? And I'm sure I will get nothing but platitudes, but I have to do something, right? Sure. And some of that is learning and talking with all of you, but I also have to do more than that. Um, yeah, we we went to the May 5th event and um, it was quite beautiful, although obviously very sad, but um, nice to see the support. Although at one time there was a helicopter flying overhead and I was like, are they watching us? Because this is just a peaceful event but it was a black chopper going right over <laughs> and, and I don't know what else would it be for, but um, uh, also in here when they talked about um, reporting gender correctly, when, um, you know, coroner reports are being done. We talked about that last time, yep. um, but it just kind of hit home again. And then something that, um, 12.6 when they're talking about child apprehension and this just was a gut punch for me mm. um that um so first of all they talk about when it's unavoidable prioritizing and ensuring a family member or community member assumes care um and the caregiver is eligible for as much financial support as what a foster family would receive so there's that underfunding again <laughs> but and this is what got me additional supports for the purpose of caring for the child, particularly those who lose their mothers to violence or institu institutionalization. And that was just, just heartbreaking to read. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's it for me for now. Um, I did, sorry, back to the land acknowledgement. It just wasn't quick enough on the hop. I wanted to say I was down for work in Medicine Hat the other day and driving home. And I didn't go the route Google was taking me. I went through the Siksika Reserve. And um, I thought, that's an important drive to take. How many people actually, so people probably understand at where the Gray Eagle Casino is. Do they know more than that about people that live right beside us? <laughs> so, um, Anyway, that's the end of my reflections. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you, Marla. I appreciate that. Um, now, and I know we've had uh, other conversations, but I just wanted to invite Mike if uh, there was something that we spoke about that you found interesting that you'd like to add to or anything. Sure. Um, actually, I had two things that uh, jumped out at me. I didn't make it all the way through. I made it to about page 200 where um, it started to talk about particular communities. Um, and I think it builds on the point that Rosemary was talking about where it's about equality, but it's about equality of outcomes. And I think that was really important because a lot of times, and, and people have said why why is there hesitation for action? I think a lot of people hide behind the phrase or the word opportunity that they would say, oh, everybody has equal opportunity, therefore we live in a 
a fair or equal society. And I think that's a, that's a distinction that really comes out here is that when you've constantly underfunded certain people, then you, it's not equal until the outcomes are equal. That's, you know, somebody starting way far behind versus somebody starting way far ahead. It's not equal if you start them at those points, you need to look at equality differently. So I think that was one thing that jumped out to me. And then the other one would it, where it mentioned it several times was it's about core and sustainable funding versus like program funding so that it's not kind of in, and I think Marla deals with it a lot more than I do, but if you're constantly working with programs where you're just trying to renew your funding or whatever, it's hard to make progress and keep going. So I think that was an important call here was that whatever that, whatever the calls were making, they were also saying it needs to be sustainable and it can't just be program-based, that it's gotta be something more fixed than that. So um, yeah, that was- You know, was Mike, I'd really like to jump in there. Sure. My husband was, we were always perusing new uh, available jobs and uh, he always sends me indigenous funds and I won't mention the nonprofit that's local here, but, um, you know, that they have another job opportunity. And he said, well, what do you think about that? And I said, this particular organization has an indigenous liaison every contract, right? So for example, uh, if it's a one-year contract, I know at the end of that year, they'll get rid of that indigenous liaison because, you know, they probably said too many truths that were too painful for the mainly white organization. And sure enough, um, I watched the, I, I actually had them on my podcast and they were talking about the wonderful programming, how happy they were because they were new. And now it's here, it is a year later and we watched them, you know, not just leave the organization, but start um, on new, in, in a new one. And I was just like, you know, and I said to my husband, if I had a friend who asked me about that particular nonprofit, I would say stay away from them like a 10 foot pole, because they're not doing the anti racism work within the organization to maintain and keep an indigenous person. And they're certainly not, you know, friendly enough that people want to stay sometimes even the full contract. Right. So I, I'm, I'm just going to bring that up, too, because even if there is sustainable funding, they don't utilize it in a good way so that people, you know, know they have a long term contract. Right. So whenever and, and I, I'm bringing it up here, but I'm also uh, this hopefully will air and I'll tell people who are listening, like, you know, watch these organizations. Um, you know, I have friends who have been in the position for 10 years and they're they're happy there. Well, they're doing something right within that organization that they feel confident to be their authentic self, as opposed to 99.9999% of Canada's nonprofit industry, etc. But kind of back to your bigger point about sustainable funding, like, you know, um, the 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 boards the calgary um school boards they know two years in advance what their funding is going to be so they can properly budget for it you don't even get two two months notice when you're indigenous sometimes right so that you can't create a long-term strategy when you know you're not going to have sustainable funding 
right? And and of course, we're all talking about, you know, under chronic underfunding. I mean, no wonder there's MMIW when you know the most vulnerable people are not just not getting dollar to dollar funding, but have been systematically given underfunding. Of course, they're dying, they're dead genocide, right? So yeah, I hope that doesn't take away from what you're saying. I hope it adds to it no, and I'll let you continue. It, yeah, it does add to it. Um, and then the last thing I did want to share is where I work, we did do some awareness for uh, Red Dress Day. Um, it was kind of the first time we had done it. So I thought it was really important just to put it, you know, just to have something out there. And, you know, we had some stories from the Highway of Tears and it was just, you know, even when we were just collecting the stories, right? How heartbreaking it is to read, you know, we had maybe 10 of them and to think of how many there are and just the impact it's had. So um, yeah, thank you for having us. And uh, yeah, that's all for now. Oh, I'm honored. And, and again, I hope you all know um, what you don't know is that because people aren't doing this nationally, unfortunately, what you're doing here by doing this education is the important part. Like I'm sure, um, Rosemary, I know you didn't get to it, but I know you're aware that there are calls to action or calls to justice specifically for Canadians. Well, I think everyone here knows there's very few people doing it and especially folks in uh, positions of power. So um, yeah, I'll go from there. And uh, I'm just gonna pause it for a second here. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. My name is Paul. My pronouns are he, him, and his. I'm not Indigenous. I reside in West Michigan, which is historical land of the Ottawa people. I'm not sure if it's seated or unseated. Um, I am in a learning mode, so I don't have a lot to contribute. Um, my interest is implying the knowledge and the lessons Alberta, and specifically the tar sands issues, which I'm uh, trying to write a story about. Um, to Enbridge's attempt to expand Pipeline 5 in West Michigan, which if successful would be a significant and dangerous threat to the, all of the Great Lakes. So far, the defense, um, the opposition to Enbridge's, Enbridge's um, uh, attempts to expand their pipeline have been mostly technical in conversation about how dangerous they would be, the extent of the damage to the Great Lakes, the industries they would affect. Tonight's conversation adds a justice component to our argument that has not been discussed, which I think would be a very valuable contribution. So thank you for the opportunity. Oh, Paul, I am not going to let you go that easily. So, <laughs> okay. And the reason why is because um, for the first time, and it really upset Alberta so much so that I actually enjoyed watching uh, Albertans get their panties in a bunch. So uh, there are specific calls to justice specifically for, uh, and they're called the calls for extractive and developmental industries. Right. So, I saw that in the report. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and that's the focus that I would give you as well, because if they don't have a comprehensive plan on their Indigenous, and, and actually the opposite is happening in the States, I don't know if everyone here is aware, but basically the States actually has this uh, law to protect the children so that they can't be apprehended, that they stay in the tribe. 
well, the folks who own uh, the pipeline that's going in there were mad because of Standing Rock. So they've actually put together trying to implement child apprehension in order to justify, um, you know, stealing the, the children. So like, um, let's say on TikTok, you know, they're talking about this. It's very open, very honest about what is happening and uh, trying to stop this law uh, becoming real because, I mean, here we're doing the opposite work. Now, I would like to think under Biden it won't, but as you all know, like there's no guarantee there whatsoever. And uh, Mike, I don't know if I mentioned it to you sooner, but my latest podcast uh, is called Ray of Light. And it, it's a very sad, sad, sad one. So for folks who don't listen to my podcast, it's uh, really based on the Highway of Tears. Uh, we have a survivor and she talked about two of the um, older girls and like we're talking a 13 year old being protected by two 14 year olds and them going missing and murdered on the Highway of Tears and a very sad story because it was all rooted in child apprehension. So obviously the you know pipeline folks that Paul's talking about want to basically do what they've done here, replicate that down south so you don't have another standing rock because you have all uh, too broken of a community to possibly stand up to the pipeline extraction, right? So um, just kind of throwing that in there, hope, hoping that resonates and makes sense to folks. And uh, yeah, I encourage people to listen to Ray of Light because it's, uh, you know, a very um, triggering, frankly, but uh, very uh, honoring of people. And, and Marla was saying that she had went to the uh, Red Dress event. The purpose of these events is to help our community heal, being how we have to do it ourselves, right? We have to try to heal in the best way that we can as a community. So, um, and I, I hope that the Ray of Light podcast helps honor uh, her sisters that she loves and cares about and tries to honor. And that happened around 92, 94, somewhere in there. Cause I remember me saying, just to give people a reminder, I graduated high school in 94, that easily could have been me, right? Just to give people perspective. So, so thank you, Paul. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we move, move on? No, but thank you for uh, the clarification. And I will look more at the extractive industry section of the reports. And thank you. Yeah, sure. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. All right. And after Paul, I'm just going to give this a pause. All right. Uh, Wendy, would you like to unmute yourself and tell me what you were thinking about when you read the 231 calls to justice? Thanks, Michelle. Um, hi, everyone. Um, my name is Wendy Benoit. Um, I use she and her pronouns, and I am a white settler here on Treaty 7. I, um, I tried to approach the reading a little differently this time. I would say I'm not, uh, I really uh, applaud you, Marla, for the commitment you're making about your letter writing. Um, I'm, I'm on that road, but I'm not as far along on the road. So I, I tried to take some notes, kind of imagining what, what pieces I would want to pull out, um, in a letter. Um, I, I, I know I'm still, I'm a slow, I'm slow to do these things, but I do them deeply. So I, I thought I would make lots of notes and I will definitely come back to them. Um, when the moment is right, I think I also want to feel, um, intensity behind whatever letters I write. So I'm looking for some specific things, but <clears throat> they gave so many, so many great pieces um, in this 
portion of the report. Um, so maybe I'll just pull out a couple things that I noticed in my notes um, that, that resonated with me, some of the things I highlighted that I could keep coming back to. Um, we've already talked a bit about how it needs to be sustainable funding uh, as opposed to program funding. I also thought the statement, um, this part on page 175, temporary and deficit-based approaches do not increase capacity for self-determination or self-governance and fail to adequately provide protection and safety as well as substantive equality. So the reason I, I that sentence uh, got pulled out there for me was the idea of deficit-based approaches. I find that that's something I would like to hear more about, talk more about in general, in many circles that I'm in, because I think until it was kind of named for me many months ago, probably from discussions in this group, um, it's one of those things that I couldn't see until I started looking for it. And now, now I see it's all over the place. Um, and then um, there were lots of pieces I pulled out related to education, um, you know, talking about different programs and, and that those programs need to continue all the way through. Um, so like that a lot of the calls for justice focused on that. Um, and there were several of those that also emphasize the need for all of these things to be indigenous led. So I think there were in each of the calls that they have, they have some really good language um, to remind people that doesn't mean go try to do that um, without uh, making sure you are supporting rather than leading um, what those pieces need to look like. So um, there were quite a few in that realm. Um, but I think um, this one for sure, like I could almost imagine at any point, I can feel the intensity behind a letter that that should go in the direction of housing and drinking water. So it talked a bit about um, you know, call 4.1 um, that talked about ensuring that Indigenous people have services and infrastructure that meet their social and economic needs. All governments must immediately ensure Indigenous peoples have safe housing, clean drinking water, and adequate food. I was thinking about that quite a lot with the, the fires this past week, um, and just kind of thinking about any time we are reminded that we... Um, we just turn on our taps and we just turn on our lights and we just do all the things we need to do. Um, but it is a really uh, upsetting thing that that's not true for all people. Um, I also liked that there were pieces related to transit because I remember some of the transportation issues that came up in earlier parts of our discussion of the report. Like those really resonated for me um, and, and seeing better uh, public transit is really important for me as a as a citizen in general. I take lots of transit myself. Um, so that one resonated because I was like, yeah, this is another reminder that implementing these calls actually benefit everybody, um, not only Indigenous people who definitely need us to take more action in that direction, but everybody could benefit. Um, and then I think that takes me, so I have several more, but I wanted to focus the last piece here. What a fantastic list of calls for justice for all Canadians. Mm. Like I felt that that list was just so comprehensive, yeah. but it, it also um, lifted me up a little bit in the sense that I could see um, I, I, the beginnings of, of how these 
pieces translated into my own life. Right. Um, and so, you know, I really liked all of that section, especially 15.4. Uh, the last part of that says actively working to break down barriers and to support others in every relationship and encounter in which you participate. Mm -hmm. It's just such a good general statement. And what I really noticed this week um, was thinking about these. So thank you for assigning this reading in such a timely way as well, um, because this was a, a great week to be doing this preparation. And so any opportunities, um, I know I have several opportunities in the workplace to do land acknowledgements. And so I actually pulled the report up on the screen just so people could see how easy it is to access these reports. Um, and then I leading into the end of the week, you know, I had planned to wear red and I kind of had it in my mind, you know, maybe this would feel and look a bit the way orange shirt day does right now, where you actually go out and you see lots of people wearing orange. Mm -hmm. And it took me aback a little bit to realize, um, so I had a lot of things happening on May 5th. So I went to a lot of um, different kinds of settings I would normally be in. And I was um, disappointed that there wasn't a lot of red. Um, so it just left me thinking about that quite a lot. And um, I'm still working on how do I bring these things up in everyday conversation. So one of the things I'm working on right now is to try to bring up the word white or whiteness in my everyday language, because that actually is harder than I thought. And I was in a, a conversation on May 5th um, with various people that I don't know, uh, most of the people I didn't know, and all, almost all uh, were white. And I said something along the lines of like, well, you know, we all step in it sometimes. And I said, as a white person, I step in it all the time. And it it kind of landed in the conversation like a ton of bricks. Like everybody kind of like, <laughs> I, I was surprised that it didn't actually lead to any conversation, but I've been just reflecting on that. So um, been thinking about that a lot. And then it was so great to get to the resources. So you mentioned the resources, Michelle. Um, I, I could access all of those. I think the last one, it took me to like a, uh, the link didn't work, but if you just search the name that's given next to the link, it takes you to the appropriate current link. Perfect. But um, a couple of them are super short and I think I can just print them out and have them with me um, as reminders. So there's such great things in these lists. Okay, Wendy, I got to mention this about the white thing. So um, I, I've only recently given myself permission to use that term too. I usually say uh, non-Indigenous only to really encompass the fact that there are racist BIPOC too, right? Um, but for the most part, I have started to use a lot more um, white, but I was on the um, uh, counter, the, the vote, what do they call this here? The vote, you determine your vote on the CBC vote determination. So on here, I couldn't believe it, but on one of the choices, they actually asked, do you identify as white? And I thought that's bold for the CBC, the vote compass to ask someone if they identify as white. I've never seen them do it. Now, for those who have seen the uh, calls to justice for media, for so for even influencers, 
like we, we have to start being more honest right you know I so I actually took a screenshot of it because I couldn't believe it and I thought oh I'm going to talk about this you know during election conversations but uh today's not that day obviously uh we have so much going on when you said so much going on I'm like oh my god I don't know what has happened in the last four days but my life has flipped right upside down so I I understood what you meant but the term white is such an offensive term yet I live under the Indian Act right um and and I just find it so interesting how white people have been the first to say you are black you are brown you are like n-words you are Indian you are squaw but you say the word white and it's somehow derogatory right so I, I think it's a really valid point you brought up and I'm not surprised you were kind of met with um a surprise with how it would come out. Yeah. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah. And I think it's just going to take more practice of saying it because really I'm at the stage of like, how do I just become comfortable enough to say it? It still uh, requires more thinking before I speak, but thank you. That's all, that's all I had to add today. Oh, I'm so glad. I thought it was really valuable what everybody had to say. So we, we actually kind of quickly went through everybody. Um, I was really surprised. I thought maybe more of it would be generated, but um, just because it's being recorded, I thought maybe quickly I would read, there's only eight here, the calls to justice for all Canadians. And kind of building on what you were going, what you were saying was that I was hoping that people would see beyond, um, you know, the book club where these calls to justice could go now maybe a community association maybe a board that you're on a sports club anything like that so just think think about that as i read this um calls to justice for all canadians this is page 119 um for those who have access it, it's free online for folks who don't as this report has shown and within every encounter each person has a role to play in order to combat violence against Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA people. Beyond those calls aimed at governments or at specific industries or service providers, we encourage every Canadian to consider how they can give life to these calls for justice. We call on all Canadians to, and 15.1 is denounce and speak out against violence against Indigenous women, girls, and 2S LGBTQQIA people. Um, I'm not going to lie, I see a few people on Twitter that will are, are calling out Rachel Notley, as well as the UCP on their violence against, um, you know, gendered violence and, and racist violence. Um, and I hope to see that continue. They say it about Justin Trudeau too, but I ironically don't see it about Pierre Polivier by anyone but progressives, right? So like, I consider myself a progressive. I could easily talk about the so-called progressive politicians and their, uh, you know, defaults, uh, their problems when it comes to all of that. So uh, 15.2, decolonize by learning the true history of Canada and Indigenous history in your local area. Learn about and celebrate Indigenous people's uh, culture, pride, diversity, acknowledging the land you live on and its importance to the local Indigenous communities, both historically and today. A fun story, I, I seen, uh, I, I met a fellow uh, from the Yukon, he was very uh, 
honor, proud of who he was and where he came from. And he talked about when his land was first, uh, they had the first explorers going through it. And I was doing timelines through my head about, you know, what had happened already in Yellow Knight, or I guess in my in Satu, as well as in uh, Blackfoot territory. So it was interesting, kind of, that's how my, my brain works, is the timeline of what each community was doing. Um, but it, I just kept saying, no, I don't know anything about your people in order to hear him try to talk about his people in his way and uh, the pride he had, right? I just loved it. So, um, and, and I, I, I bring it up because even if you think you know, you don't know. And you certainly don't know it from that person's point of view, right? So that's why I encourage people to just listen. And that's what I was trying to actively do with him. Um, 15.3, develop knowledge and read the final report. Um, obviously, it took us months and months and months to get through this report, right? It's not fun. It's not easy. It takes time. So that's why I can always tell when people lie to me and be like, yeah, no, I totally read the report. And I'm like, mm, get you. I can tell by the way you're talking to me, you didn't. <laughs> anyway, listen to the truth shared an acknowledgement of the burden of these humans and Indigenous rights violations and how they impact Indigenous women, girls, and 2SLGBTQIA people today. And I, I still don't think people do understand the gravity of how, you know, the long-standing historical issues that have led to today's policy still in place continue to disproportionately affect Indigenous women, girls, and uh, those who identify as Two-Spirit. Like, I just don't think there is that comprehension. So it's been really great hearing it from many of you that understand the chronic underfunding, what it has caused, and why we're here. So I want to say thank you to you all for that. Um, 15.4, using what you've learned and some of the resources suggested, become a strong ally. Being a strong ally involves more than just tolerance. It means actively working to break down barriers and support others in every relationship and, and encounter in which you participate. And um, so I can say through the Reconciliation Action Group, I've seen that. I've seen, uh, you know, people share some very horrific things and seeing uh, white settler allies saying, oh my goodness, this is awful. How do we support you? How do we help you through this? And um, so my hope is, is that other reconciliation groups across the country are, are doing that kind of active work of being a stronger ally. As I always say, and if you're not acting, you're performative. And um, it, this doesn't say the word act per se. It says, um, you know, actively working to break down. And, and I think that that's action, right? 15.6, protect, support, and promote the safety of women, girls, and 2SLGBTQIA people by acknowledging and respecting the value of each person and every community, as well as the right of women, girls, and 2S people to generate their own self-determined solutions. Um, this is really important with the conversation I was having with Reconciliation Action Group and Awaton Healing Lodge. You know, uh, we're seeing non-Indigenous trying to uh, decide for Indigenous women. And, we, and that, that, that's just perpetuating more colonialism, right? And today, out of all days, Pat, Patty Haiju um, federally had announced a bunch of money 
going for a bunch of new shelters in indigenous uh, nations across the country. Although I did have one uh, Twitter commentator say, well, not enough for Saskatchewan. So I, I haven't looked into it yet because today's been a busy day, but um, and it's really important that they had already skimmed it. They had already seen this is missing. And if we're already experiencing these issues with Aoton and other white-led non-Indigenous groups, I think it's really important to be really looking at it, like what kind of um, governance is really happening in some of these so-called organizations for Indigenous women, because most of the money up to now has gone into funding for RCMP and policing services, while those are definitely not Indigenous women-led, so important to bring out. Uh, 15.5, confront and speak out against racism, sexism, ignorance, homophobia, and transphobia, and teach or encourage others to do the same whenever it occurs in your home and your workplace or in social settings. And I keep thinking about the counter protests for the reading when it comes to uh, people in drag, like I'm there confronting. And when I don't see more so-called allies, and I'm, I'm in my confronting in my red ribbon skirt because this is a real issue against, um, you know, those who identify as Indigenous and those who identify as LGBTQ, they should be safely being able to do that. So Marla asked the questions, can you expand on Awaton, Michelle? I'm not aware of this issue. So um, on my social media, I had asked um, my settler friends to take out a membership to Awaton Healing Lodge and vote in the upcoming AGM for Indigenous um, board members. Because what has happened is, is that their constitution says 50% or more need to be Indigenous. And that is no longer the reality. And because of that, they've been trying to take out things like the elders and prayer. And as a result, that means that it's no longer who it is. Now, uh, a lot of this is not made public yet. Um, uh, I have a lot more I could say. So off the record, if you're interested, you know, join the Reconciliation Action Group or, or reach out to me later. And I will tell you off the record on the phone some of the things that are happening. Um, but for folks who are maybe listening to the podcast and they're in Ontario, um, I'm sure we have lots of Indigenous-led organizations in your area. And um, Awaton Healing Lodge was founded by Ruth Scalplock. Uh, Ruth Scalplock is a Siksika elder, and at the time she was a social worker in the city, and she was working for Sheriff King and seeing a lot of racism within Sheriff King. And the truth is, is a lot of the, um, you know, white shelters are very anti-Indigenous, and they don't even know it, right? They, they don't understand um, why our needs are different, why we have such large families, why an auntie uh, with uh, kids fleeing is uh, the intimate partner violence that needs to be addressed. You know, it's very colonial in the way the shelter systems are set up right now, not to mention racist, point blank, racist. So, um, you know, for if, you, if you're in Ontario, if you're listening to me from another province, I do challenge you to really look at your organizations. And if you only have a YWCA, I know it's not actually servicing the Indigenous community the way it could, the way it should. And uh, it should have 50% board members 
of Indigenous people in order to call itself an Indigenous-led organization. And we're seeing that more and more where non-Indigenous people are trying to take over on these boards and unfortunately are not doing very good allyship, which is an important part of this section that we're talking about. Uh, 15.6, protect and support and promote the safety of Indigenous women girls to it to us LGBTQIA people by acknowledging and respecting the value of each person and every community as well as the right oh I think I said that one I apologize um I uh 15.7 create time and space for relationships based on respect as human beings supporting and embracing differences with kindness love and respect learn about indigenous principles of relationships specific to those nations or communities in your local area and work and put them into practice in all of your relationships with Indigenous peoples. And then lastly, 15.8, help hold all governments accountable to act on the calls to justice and implement them according to the important principles we set out. So a great example is kind of back to Marla's point about writing a letter to her local uh, candidates and leaders and asking them about what their plans are, uh, if they were become premier, what you would do for the calls to justice. Now, the UCP, um, this is gonna out air long after the election, their easy talking points would be, oh, will we put out the 113 pathways to justice. We have a new premier's council on missing and murdered indigenous women, girls and two-spirit, and we plan to give funding for XYZ. That should be what their words should be. I guarantee, like my MLA, who I have to educate constantly on not just Indigenous issues, but Canada in general, isn't going to have those talking points come back to me. Um, my NDP candidate, I love him to pieces. He's a, a gay teacher, actually, Filipino. So he already fits in the umbrella of Voices. So Voices was an organization we started when Toronto's Black Lives Matter stopped the parade and had demands. Uh, we did a community conversation here for all QT BIPOC and Voices was founded as a result. And we asked the Calgary police and all police not to show up in uniform at Pride. And that caused a whole storm when it came to Calgary and even the community, the LGBTQ community didn't realize how racist they actually were. So it, it was a great conversation, frankly. Um, anyway, I can't remember what I was talking about, holding people accountable. Um, I don't know where I was going with that, apologize. Uh, does anybody want to chime in? Uh, we have a little more time here and I just wanted to encourage open discussion for anybody who might have questions. Carol, um, please unmute yourself. Michelle, I I just had to look up Rachel Motley because I thought, God, I don't want to vote for someone who's not doing her work. And I saw that she has done some work. I saw that in 2015, she apologized to indigenous people because there was a lack of governmental response. So there, there are some things that she's done. The Toronto Star has an article too about um, Rachel Notley and um, the other political leaders, their stance on indigenous people. But I mean, really it's not enough. 
And um, so I hate to say this, but sometimes you're voting for people who you just, you, you, it's the least of the worst, but I don't see Rachel Notley that way, truthfully. Oh, maybe you should listen to Marilyn Northpagan's podcast. Well, maybe I should, and I will. Send me, send me the link in my email, and I, I will, because maybe I need to know that, but I definitely need to know that, but I just cannot, um, I just can't get over how, uh, you know, people just, the political leaders just ignore this over and over again. I just can't get over it. I mean... I don't even know what to say, Michelle. I just that I did at least see some from Rachel Notley, which I thought, okay, a little bit of redemption, but you know, it's not, I don't know at all, obviously. Sure. Because they're really, who else are we gonna vote for in this province, right? Who else have we got to drive out the problem? Well, and that's what I tell people both federally as well, right? Where I just say it's a matter of harm reduction. So, um, you know, for me, it's a shoe in. I'm voting NDP and I'm uh, voting liberals because the uh, alternative is just not there, you know, and do they have a lot to work on? Yeah, both of them. But anyway, uh, Rosemary, please just chime in. I, I just want to chime in with... Um, uh, Under Notley's government, one, they settled, they made the feds come to the table and settled the Lubicon land claim, Northern Alberta, which had been ongoing for decades and continuously stalled <clears throat> by conservatives. Um, I'm not saying they provided enough, but a lot of money went into languages and language training and um, they also, and I'm, I don't know how it uh, <clears throat> performed in reality, but all government departments were to look at under it and use that as a lens for implementing programs. Now against that, <laughs> we also had not least promotion, right? Of the Trans-Canada pipeline. So, it, you know, I just think governments are, some of them are full of contradictions. At least I feel with the NDP, we can push, we can push from the inside as well as outside. You know, you know it, there's a chance, you know, to push them more. <clears throat> Agreed. And, and, and in terms of the um, um, calls for justice, I felt again that just like the report, they were so so thorough, so holistic in their approach. Um, I mean, we're, you know, you're trying to undo centuries, right, of racism and misogyny and anti-indigenous racism, and they just touch on so many aspects of the issue not only in terms of the categories that the calls are organized under, but within each <coughs> call. Just, and and they're, just, they're so consistent uh, fr from the report into the calls on a, a holistic approach, distinctions-based approach, and just really thinking of everything. I, as I've said before, to me, that report, it, is is um, somehow it 
it was even more powerful to me than the TRC report. Yep. I'm glad. I think the, the opening of this section speaks to what you were saying, Rosemary, where they say the steps to end and redress this genocide must be no less monumental than the combination of systems and actions that has worked to maintain colonial violence for generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do agree. I mean, I'm voting NDP as well. I do think there is more hope there and you've given me slightly more hope. It's just, I get so frustrated by, you know, for example, if we followed these calls to action, life would be better for all Canadians. Mm -hmm. Well, if politicians on both sides would not get stuck in rhetoric and just, you know, the easy gains for votes and actually work on advancing long-term uh, problems for people, then we'd all be better off too. And so anyway, that's my rant. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I love it. I'm not <laughs> ranting. We need to have the open dialogue, 100%. And uh, kind of back to what everybody's saying, just it benefits us all to be able to openly talk about it, so. Yeah, I think Mike and I were talking one time and he had read something and he'll remember this better than me, but he read some book where it talked about the only real change comes from violence. And I was like, oh, that's not true. And I brushed it off and I stomped away. And then I sat and thought about it for a while. And I was like, hmm, that is true. <laughs> so I, yeah, that's the only, the politics will never change. And, um, you know, we have to be the groundswell that forces the change because it's, it's not enough for Indigenous people to keep fighting their own fight, which they should never have to fight in the first place. But if we're not going to help fight it, it'll never, ever, ever. It's way too easy yeah. to push it under the rug and focus on, you know, where the next uh, GDP percentage point is coming from. Yeah. Yep. And I just encourage people, <laughs> like, there's three levels of racism I fight every, every morning. It's systemic racism. It's uh, individual racism from other people. But then it's lastly, the internalized racism, right? So if, if we have our so-called allies working on systemic racism and never really focusing on that, um, you know, especially the internalized racism, like when you have your marching orders, that's enough, right? Like that's a lot of work, but it's so much more. It's three times the amount of work for an indigenous person. So that's why it is important that we have allyship for sure. And I, 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 hope that this language starts changing a bit so that it's more than just um, allyship it's treaty partnership like it's an understanding that as a treaty partner it is an obligation as well so you know if you're focused on reconciliation and you want to reconcile with indigenous people and you're focused on being a good treaty partner of course allyship is just like part of that conversation without saying the word allyship right like your treaty partner your focused on on reconciliation so and in the comments uh, page 142 
the chart bar location of the incidents shows Alberta as having the highest number. How does that correlate with the number of extractive projects? And, you know, I would argue it completely correlates, right? Um, but I would also say child welfare is an extractive project mm. as well, right? <laughs> so kind of add to that and, uh, and, and land theft, obviously. And oh, that was an interesting conversation I had this weekend where, um, you know, I heard a farmer talk about how worried he was because he was a fifth generation farmer and his family and all of the surrounding uh, farms are being bought up by corporations and very soon we won't have people owning it and I said well it's too bad that farmers won't have this real conversation about treaty partnership with us because a corporation should never own the land that land is treaty land and that wasn't in the treaty that corporations could own the land so interesting um so speaking of extractive projects like you know mm -hmm. corporations believing they can own the land like that this has to end and as if the leases from the crown land isn't enough and uh you know that's just from from my experience just being in the industry the small time i was so anyway yeah thank you folks this has been a really great conversation go ahead kat i just want to say in regards to government um Dr. Cindy Blackstock did say that governments react to change. They don't create change. So we are the ones who have to create the change to get the governments to react. And so I encourage you to join the Reconciliation Action Group. <laughs> as mentioned, we are really great at writing letters and, and wrapping buildings in red tape and uh, marching and <laughs> things like that. So everyone is welcome to that. Um, outside of the province, you can start your own reconciliation action group and just let us know what you're doing and how you're going. Um, contact us at reconciliation action group yyc at gmail.com if you want any info about how to start or contact us through our Facebook page. We are more than happy to help you out. Right, and look at that great initiative that we've seen from St. Paul. Um, and we read their book and we had the uh, kind of a conversation with with what they were doing right so like in reconciliation initiatives can look different uh, based on what you're doing and it was really respectful to the land. And I think Rosemary wanted to speak. No, no. Okay, great. I was touching my <laughs> Awesome. All right, folks. All right. Well, any lasting thoughts? Does anybody have any lasting thoughts? I also just wanted to say thank you, Michelle, for um, what you said about racism. I never thought of it that way, the, st the structural, the personal, and the um, in internalized. So I will sort of keep that in the back of my mind going forward as well. And if y'all are not sick of reading, um, Settlers Book Club is coming up on May 29th. We're kind of skipping over the May long weekend, and we're reading Laughing with the Trickster oh. on sex in accordance with Thompson Highway, which is also a Massey Hall lecture, so you can listen to it if you like. Anyway, you can email me as well at settlersbccalgary at gmail. Uh, just go to my website, settlersbookclub.com if you want some info, and um, you can email me there. Thank you, Michelle, for everything you do, all the energy you put into this, and just living your life. Well, out there. I'm honored. I'm honored to share it with people because I'm reading it anyway. I'm just glad somebody else wants to read it with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, 
Michelle, I just wanted to say that until I read um, how to be a good ally, I mean, I knew that you were educating us, but it clicked in my head. This woman is teaching us to be better treaty partners. And so I thank you for that because I don't know how I could have been without you and without this group. And wouldn't it be fascinating if we had to teach, um, we were required to teach indigenous languages in schools. That's another piece of, uh, of the, uh, the recommendations. And that, I forgot to mention that, that would be fascinating. That would be so excellent. We don't need to just learn French. We need to learn other things as well. So thanks, Michelle. Well, that's great. Well, glad to hear this great feedback, folks. Well, um, I hope you enjoy Five Little Indians. It's uh, graphic, it's violent at times, it's sexually violent, and there's religious violence, obviously. Um, a lot of flashbacks. So basically, this is a post-Indian residential school book with people dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder without it being labeled as such and with the incredible systemic barriers that are in place. And I think you'll all uh, see that as you read it. So I hope, uh, I hope it's something that you can get through and uh, we'll go from there. And I didn't even reach out to Michelle Good, but uh, I'll see if, if uh, I can find some good interviews or something that maybe she would, uh, of her, and we can show because we can now because we're on zoom as opposed to being in person right so um we'll go from there and yeah oh and just a mommy plug um samantha has an article coming out she was really mentored by leonard monkman um for cbc kids so if you get a weird link from me for cbc kids it's probably me bragging about samantha so <laughs> great Cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming. And uh, I'll just stay here for the end and, and hit stop and, and we'll see you next time. And I'm sure I'll see you all soon, too. <laughs>